You can grab a seat this morning. I want to uh, start with just uh, making a point that sometimes is missed, and it's this. Paul could have used any illustration as he's talking to the church in Corinth about, about immorality or food. He could have used anything, but he chose those two illustrations for this reason. They were the things that the church in Corinth was struggling with the most. Now, they had other issues, I understand, but these were their two big issues they were really struggling with. So, uh, you know, it could be gluttony or pride or substance abuse or a critical spirit or, or driving too fast on the highway. But what he chose for them were, were these issues that were really at home for them. So as we read through this and we study through it today, um, just hear what Paul is trying to say and start asking the Lord, where does this make application to me right now uh, in, in Wisconsin and in Illinois, wherever you may be from, but um, how does this apply to me right this minute? The message today is called What Naturally Follows. And what we're trying to do is to, to understand that when we live by the Spirit, when we uh, follow the things of the Spirit, there's some conducts that are naturally going to follow that. And we're going to look at that in three ways. First of all, we're going to uh, talk about stuff to run from. And then we're going to talk about this issue of worshiping. And I promise I'll draw the connection for what Paul is saying and how this applies on this matter of worshiping. And then we're going to talk about glorifying. Now, the first two will be where we spend most of our time. Glorifying is pretty short, but I think that really short one is going to be one of those tools. And by the way, I heard this from some of the folks in the first service. That's one of those things I'm going to put in my back pocket and pull out from time to time because it reminds me of what it is to glorify. So I think you'll enjoy that. So let's start with stuff to run from. Um, In Galatians 5, 16, we read this. It says, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Listen, there's times to walk and there's times to run, right? You agree? So let me give you an illustration. I want you to imagine you're going to the zoo one day, and uh, you're going to the zoo, and, and as you're there, there's lots of crowds and everything, and you make your way to this area where the, where the lions and tigers live, you know, and they're, they're in their enclosures, and, and here you are, and, and you look to your left, and you notice that somebody has left the cage open, and there's a lion who has now taken a particular interest in you that's not behind a cage. Is this a time to walk or a time to run? Are you kidding? This is a run moment, and you only need to run one step faster than the guy next to you, and you're all good. So here's the moment you've realized. There's a fight or a flight instinct. It is the acme of foolishness to think you're going to fight the lion. You are going to lose and lose badly. And as he's eating your head, your last thought will be, I should have run. So here's here's what I'm telling you. There are times to run away. Okay, there's a time you need to get away from it. And I want to give you the coolest example ever. When I was a youth pastor, uh, for years and years, in in every February, we studied this verse. It's part of our Decision Before the Doorbell series. And it went like, I know it's a cool title, isn't it? I know some of you are like, I'm writing that down. So Decision Before the Doorbell talked to our teens about good decisions to make before you're ready to start dating. And one of the things we told them was, run from youthful lust. Now, we were good Baptists, and so we used the Kingeth Jameseth Bible, and what we always had to do is this word, flee. And for, you know, kids in Virginia Beach, they're hearing the word flee, they're like, flee, like the stuff on your dog? No, no, flee means run. And so we taught them like this. Here's how you say this first, the first word. You ready? Run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Listen, listen, it can destroy your entire life. Bad decisions made right now. Youthful lusts aren't just about sexuality. They're like, how fast will this car go? They're like, ooh, I wonder what it's like if I take that, drink that, inhale this, shoot this up. All these things that can happen that are new experiences that kind of equate to youthful lust can destroy you. And so run is what we always told them. So when you read 2 Timothy 2.22, it starts with 
from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. In other words, make your friends, the people that you date, the people you spend time with, are the people who, like you, are valuing the things of heaven and not the things that are going to stimulate these youthful lusts, which can destroy you. So for years, I was at that church for six years, every year, we would, we would teach this in Decision Before the Doorbell, run from youthful lust. So it became kind of like a little thing all the students would do, right? They would run, you know, and so somebody would walk in inappropriately dressed, you know, run, you know. So it was, it was their, their joking thing. So roll the calendar ahead. We're down in Brazil, and we finished up a mission trip. And uh, what I always did for my mission teams is we would work for a week or two weeks, whatever, in country, and then we would give them a day or two off. And we would take them to the island of Florianopolis or Floripa and let them go to the beach and just relax. And we, we were always careful about what beach we went to and when. We kind of knew, you know, it, it's a Brazilian beach for the love of Pete. So you kind of have to think about it. There's a lot of flesh happening out there. You got to kind of figure out when you're going to go where. And so we kind of had a good system. And so we would stay in this hotel that's just inside the jungle and you'd walk out of the jungle out onto the beach. And, um, there's about three entrances that go out to the beach. And so everybody's tired. It's our first relaxed day. And we're walking out on the beach. And uh-oh. Turns out the beach is full today. And it was kind of like their spring breaky sort of thing. Awesome. In Brazil. And so as they're walking out, our leaders are like, oh, no, this is not a good scene. And as I'm looking down, a, a bunch of our teens have kind of grown up in the youth group are walking out the other entrance. And we walked out. And all of a sudden, from down there, I hear this, run. <laughs> and, and so we did. We turned around. We went back up and stayed at the pool at the Posada, at the, at the hotel. I just kind of hung out there for, uh, for the days to relax until the beach kind of cleared out. But here's what they were learning. There are situations you can put yourself in that are going to destroy you. They can ruin you. They can, they can cause you to sin. They can cause you to make mistakes over and over again. And that pattern of sin can begin in your life at a young age. And so what Paul is saying, don't put yourself in those situations. In Galatians 5, 16 to 25, you're familiar with this whole thing about the fruit of the spirits and the fruit of the flesh. But what he's saying is, that, listen, walk by the spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. Walking, your Christian life is defined as a walk. It's a walk. It's stepping, it's foot in front of the other, and it's walking the step of living the Christian life. But there's going to come times when you encounter some things that you need to run away from. Don't try to be tough. I got this on my own. I can handle it. That's foolishness. Stand with the people who can support you. But from time to time, when you find yourself in that situation that can ruin you, run away. Now, if you can hear what Paul was saying, he was saying, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I'll not be mastered by anything. Last week when Matt was talking about this, he used a phrase that I've used for a lot of years, and the phrase goes like this, some things are not worthy of the gospel. Did you hear him? Did you hear him last week on this? What he's trying to get across to you is this, some behaviors, some life patterns are not worthy of the gospel because they will actually diminish your effectiveness at sharing the gospel of Jesus with people, living it out, proving the gospel of Jesus. And when you encounter some of those things that can destroy you or cause these bad patterns, look, run away. Don't try to be a hero. Admit where you're weak and run away. It's like the lion. It's going to consume you. Don't put yourself in a position to be consumed. Huh? Are, are you hearing me? Are we wise in this? You know what those areas in your life might be. And, and I think most of us have them, unless you're just really spectacular. 
The fact is, there's things in your life that can destroy you. They can stimulate the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, what James calls those, those, those great driving sins. We all have them. So be wise about what those are and run away from them. Stay away. Create barriers for yourself so you don't constantly put yourself in it. Here's what's happening in Corinth. They're having issues with the food and with sexual immorality. So Paul picks those two at this moment to really drive the point home. And what he's saying is, folks, walk in the Spirit, all right? rather than, than continuing to walk right into things that can destroy you. Their food matter had to do with gluttony, and it had to do with offense, and it had to do with letting some people starve while other people ate like kings. It had to do with, with gluttonous people on this side in the church, and then in the same church are people over here who didn't have enough food for their family. That's a broken concept in the church. If somebody's starving, other Christians ought to go, we need to step in and help them. We need to empower them, we need to provide them what they need. Instead, these other Christians were just getting fatter and fatter and more gluttonous and gluttonous and enjoying more and more and more. Food was the subject, but it replaced just about anything at this moment. And you're seeing where the sin of inequality and superiorism and classism was, was happening in their church. So in this same church, they were having these issues of sexual immorality where the people were living lifestyles that were completely contrary to God's call on people's lives. And rather than rather than just say, stop that, don't do that anymore, the Corinthian people had to realize that they keep putting themselves in situations culturally, um, uh, vocationally, socially, that were drawing them back into these sexual immoral behaviors. What were they? The list is long, and it would make Americans blush at some of the stuff the Corinthians were doing. So this is why Paul is saying, you need to just run away from those things rather than trying to resist them. You're going to lose this battle. Instead, walk by the Spirit rather than walking into these things that will ruin you. Now, what naturally happens when we run from things that can destroy us? Well, it means that we choose the things of the Spirit over the things of the flesh. Go back to Corinthians. Remember what we looked at a couple of weeks ago. We talked about the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. Da, 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 da. We're talking about the things of the flesh. What were they? This long list of things that just don't belong in the Christian lifestyle. So that's what he's referring to and what I'm referring to. You means you, you will walk in the Spirit rather than walking in fleshly desires. What naturally follows, it follows, is that rather than following what culture says is right and acceptable, we choose what the Scripture says is right and acceptable. And if there's a battle between the two, we give more weight to the scripture and we follow God's way rather than culture's way. The same thing with human wisdom or nature versus discipline. And don't raise hands, but how many of you have a thing in your heart or your life that you've struggled with most of your life? It just seemed to something you were born with. You were naturally angry, for instance. You naturally have an incredibly short temper. And people who love you and care about you have said often, you have such a short temper, you get really angry really fast. You know, it's hard to talk with you because you go off at a moment's notice. This is a sin pattern in your life. And, and so walking in the Spirit means that rather than just being who you are naturally, is you're learning to be disciplined to do things the right way, the godly way, being full down of peace and patience and long-suffering and gentleness rather than anger and rage. You get the example? And so you could have replaced the food or the sexual immorality in what the Scripture is saying here in verses 13, really all the way to 17. You could have replaced that with any number of things. But in this moment, Paul's nailing the Corinthian church on the things they're struggling with the most, which is this gluttonous, classist behavior and this sexually immoral behavior. Now, Anybody from America? Okay. Does this sound in any way relevant to our culture? Because, I mean, no, no, seriously, right. In our culture, everybody has everything they need, right? There's no people in our culture that are incredibly wealthy and others that are struggling for a next meal. We don't have that problem, right? 
We don't have this problem with sexual morality in our country, do we? Psh, I can let my kids watch TV at 9.30 at night. No problem at all, right? They're not going to be exposed to horrors that they should never see right at their age. No, these are struggles for us just like they were struggles for them. There's nothing new under the sun. What naturally follows with walking in the Spirit is that you run away from the things that can destroy you. The next thing we're looking at today, though, has to do with worship. And I want to spend the majority of these 15 minutes or so on this one because this is crucial. This matter of worship, don't you know, this is what Paul is saying, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You're not your own for you were bought at a price to glorify God with your body. What Paul is, is clearly telling them is that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Now, if that's true, What Paul is saying, and I'm going to contend that Scripture says so, therefore it's truth. Verse 19 is telling you the the Spirit lives within you. So brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors, or people who just came out of curiosity, I want you to hear something. If Christians are really Christians, it means the Holy Spirit dwells in them and their body has become a temple. And their very acts and behaviors, therefore, are equated to what you do in a temple. And what do you do in a temple? Say it again. What do you do in a temple? You worship. Now, worship means that you offer laud, that you offer worship to something that is above you, and you submit and surrender to it. And there's acts that you do that are a part of that surrender. And when we do those acts, it is an act of worship. Then if the Holy Spirit dwells within you, it means that every single thing you do is an act of worship. Does that give you pause? Because we do some pretty base things as human beings, don't we? We do some stuff in private we hope nobody else is around for that are pretty, pretty coarse. That's not necessarily what we're talking about. What we're talking about are the things that you give value and weight to are acts of worship. The way that you interact with other people, how you treat them, how you demonstrate value and make choices, these are acts of worship. Does that make sense? So as Paul's talking about that, that's what he's trying to get across. Uh, Romans one twenty one says, therefore, brothers and sisters. Now, okay, hang on a second. He's talking to Christians right now, all right? If you're here today or you're watching by video and, and you're curious about this Jesus thing and this Christianity thing, he's not talking to you yet. But when you surrender heart and life to Jesus to call him Lord and Savior, now it's you. So brothers and sisters, right? If that's you, he's talking to you, Christians. In view of the mercies of God, in other words, what he did for you, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your what? Oh, come on, we do better than this. This is your what? True worship. You've submitted your desires, your behaviors, your body to God. And now what you do with yourself is an act of worship. So worshiping through your lifestyle and through your values and through your conduct, this is simply an act of worship. It's the call of every Christian. So what does worship do? What's it look like and what's it do for you? Let me offer you a few suggestions. Now, uh, to be fair, I'm stealing these uh, from Eugene Peterson. If that name is new to you, Eugene Peterson is the one who created, who translated the Bible into The Message which is a pretty neat paraphrase or, or parallel of the Bible. Don't let that be your only Bible. But what Peterson does is he has, or Patterson is he has a beautiful ability um, to, take, to take things and put them into our language that we would use every day. And he wrote a really beautiful book called A, a Long Journey in the Same Direction. He's talking about Christian discipleship. And these are, these are the points that he makes about worship. And the first one, he says, we are, worship creates the structures of our life. 
Now think about that. Worship creates the structures of our life. Uh, you are what you love. They're one of my favorite books I've told you many times is by James K.A. Smith. It's called You Are What You Love. In other words, it goes like this. That thing, that, that stuff that you invest most of your money and your worry and your time and your thought and your pursuit into, that's what you're worshiping. Oh, so anybody doing an inventory right now in your life? What do you spend the most time and energy and thought and worry and money on? That's what you're worshiping. That's what you love. That's who you are. And if we are Christians and Jesus followers, the majority of our thought and our passion and our value should be in our relationship with God and his people and the people that need to be reached. Transforming our community by loving God and others is more than just a motto at our church. It really should be driving what we value and what we worship, right? So not to be the heavy guilt trip on everybody, but think about your life right now. What are those patterns of worship in your life? Because when we worship your Lord and your God, that will orient and structure your values and how your life functions. So I have an illustration up here. It's a girl working at a fast food restaurant. And you're probably wondering, did he put the wrong picture in? <laughs> you know, what happened? Well, I want you to think about this. How many of you were ever a teenager and wanted a car? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about Ella was like, hand went up immediately. If anybody would like to donate a car, you know. So, so when I was a teenager, I wanted my own car. I did not want to share Frank with my sister. So, so this is what I, what I realized. In order for me to have a car, which in my mind meant two wheels, by the way, you know me, uh, I'm figuring, where, what could I do? Well, I have to go to work in order to raise it. So my parents made this phenomenal deal with me. It was the best deal ever. Then my dad tells me, son, <laughs> mom's like, this is such a bad idea. I'll either, I'll either pay your insurance until you get married or I'll pay half of your first car. Well, I'm not stupid. And I was thinking, I know what insurance costs. And if they're paying my insurance, I can drive whatever I want. So better do that. So I got a job. And so I either worked at Bonanza or Ucrop's Grocery Store or Chick-fil-A uh, and, or Mr. Lawhorn. And, and I worked for them, and I, and I saved my money because I wanted to buy a car. And I did. It, it had two wheels, though. <laughs> right. So I'm really happy. But here, here's what you learn, okay? Um, the same thing she learned. She works for the car. That's why she goes. And it, it forms some patterns in your life, doesn't it? Now watch this pattern. You know it. Hey, Shannon, we're all going down to the river. We're going to go fishing and kayaking after day, day after school. You want to go? Sure do. I'm going to be working so I can have a car, so I can get to work, so I can pay for my car. It would really be fun to drive down to the river with my friends, but I'm going to be driving to Chick-fil-A and working. No, I can't go with you. You see what it did? It became my master and it dictated my schedule. Anyone? Right? If you worship that, if that's worth more than everything else, it means that takes precedent over other things. That's the principle. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your might, and your strength, when that youthful lust comes your way, when that really great opportunity that's inconsistent with Scripture comes your way, it's easy to make the right decision because the patterns of your life have been established by that with which you are focused or all that on which you focus, that that you worship. You getting the point? And so what do you love the most? That's going to help structure. So the ancient Hebrew people 
were given by their God a really beautiful gift, and, and this gift is their calendar of festivals. And that calendar of the year structured their lives around times of festivals that reminded them who they are and what mattered most and what their God had done, had, had done for them, right? So whether it's Passover, uh, where they're doing the Passover, and they're remembering being saved from life in Egypt and called out and redeemed by their Father God, which we celebrate today in the form of the communion, which we'll do later, which is Jesus Christ reaching out and saving us from a life of sin and futility and giving us an opportunity to be in fellowship with him. So, so, so the Hebrew people, well, through, through, through the Passover or through Hanukkah or through uh, the different festivals that they had, they reminded them who they were and it structured their year. So while the pagans may be doing this this time of year, we who are followers of God are going to be doing this. Then it's the reason for a lot of our Christian festivals where they are during the year. You all know Jesus wasn't born on December 25th, right? Yeah. Okay, you kind of get that. But we celebrate Christmas that time of year because it's part of our structure and our, and our shape of our year. While the pagans may be doing this, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ and remembering that God gave us a beautiful gift. And so we've redeemed what was done there. Now, your patterns in your life should be structured by those things that you worship. That's the underlying point. Worship also does this. It, it nurtures your relationship with God, right? Because when we come to worship, what we're doing is we are celebrating and submitting to God, whether that's hands raised or, or hands down and eyes closed or singing or just listening. And when we worship in church, maybe through prayer or through giving or through the message time, um, you are worshiping God in those moments. And by doing that, you nurture that relationship. So as a parallel, if you have a friend, okay, don't raise hands, but do you have a friend? Okay. How about a spouse? You got a spouse? Can we do that? So if you're like, that's my only friend. But if you, <laughs> and he's like, you need more friends. But if, you, if you're sitting there and, you, and if you don't spend any time with that person, how good is your relationship? It's just not going to be that good. If you, if you call somebody your friend and you see them you know, twice a year for 10 minutes, what you have is an acquaintance, not a friend. When you're in a real relationship, it takes time to nurture it. And worship gives you that opportunity to be in relationship with God, to enjoy God, to celebrate Him, and to lift Him up and to place Him in that place of celebration, worship, and yourself in that place of submission. This is what worshiping does. And in doing that, this universal, voluntary behavior that we Christians do gives us an opportunity to strengthen that bond with our God. And what naturally follows is going to be when challenge comes your way, when temptation comes your way, when, when, when these things come that would be contrary to God, you make a decision in favor of the relationship that is more important to you. Worship also centers our attention on godly choices. How many of you make choices in the course of your day? pretty good, right? This is an exercise moment. All of you get to do this. There we go. Okay, stretch. Uh, you know, worshiping centers our attention on our God and the kind of choices he would have us make. Authentically and regularly worshiping God means we move from feeling holy to behaving holy. How many of you like hypocritical behavior? Just love it, you know? Politics, right? Yeah. Say one thing, does another pretends to be something that they're not. Don't you love that? Don't you love it in people who act like they're your pal and then they totally hose you in the deal later? No, nobody likes that. And the reason is we sense on the inside that there's falseness. You've lied to me in what you said you were. And so here's this matter of worshiping. It means that when we worship, 
we're going to move from just acting holy to actually being holy, to behaving that way, not putting on a front of godliness and holiness, but really being that. Moving away from being the person who shows up to church on Sundays and sings the Christian songs and and throws a little bit in the bag when it comes by and does the communion and says all the right Christianese words and then goes right back to a life that is anything but godly as soon as the church doors close. That's hypocrisy. We all do it to a level, don't we? I mean, we've got some levels of this in our lives, unless you're just delusional. But the reality is that the more time you spend worshiping your God, the more you're going to be consistent and make godly choices and conduct yourself in a holy way rather than just saying you're a holy thing. So that's this matter of worship. And worship finally creates peace. And when we say peace here, we're not just saying we're not, you know, bang, bang at war with one another. Peace is this. It's shalom. Okay, It's being at peace with God. There's nothing between you and God. It's absolutely comfortable to be able to go into prayer and go, Lord, I'm struggling with this. God, I'm really frustrated about this. God, how do I act in this moment that's coming up? God, right now I'm feeling this way. God, how do I handle this? This totally comfortable with God comes as a result of spending time in worship because the relationship is strong, the bond is strong, the familiarity is there. He's your God, you're his child. And in this moment, there's the ability to be able to go before your Lord without hesitation and without shame and pray. And that's peace, that's shalom. And this is the peace that he wants you to have with his creation and his created order. In other words, people and things and nature and stuff. Because the relationship you have is not one of competition or hate. It's one of love and stewardship and grace. And this is the result of worshiping God and being at peace with God. You come to be at peace with his creation. Now, not to be naive here, there will always be those who hate God and hate God's people, right? That's just going to be the truth. However, um, that lion that may want to eat you that we've talked about a few times away, uh, he's just being who he is. That's his nature. And when people who don't love God just act like what they really are, that's just their nature, Your nature is different. You're the child of Jesus Christ, and you act according to that new nature. So what naturally follows when worship becomes a part of our life, it means that our life structure becomes godly. It means that the worshiping together on the Sabbath day or on Sunday when we celebrate that Sabbath is the natural behavior of Christians. And for the most part, everything else takes a second chair to that. It means that we structure our work schedules if we can. It means that we don't go to every Packer game every single Sunday. It means that for the most part, that comes second to being with Christ. But if you go to a game a couple times a year, that's fine. Have fun. Because if the saints come to town, I'm just going to be honest with you. Love you guys. Somebody else is preaching that Sunday. (laughs) But not every Sunday, for heaven's sakes, and not every game. Occasionally, I get it. But let's make Jesus Christ center and your worship of God the premium, most important thing in your life. Uh, Number two, we're close with God. It's easy to be in prayer, and you're close to praying with God, spending time with God in that relationship. What naturally follows good worship, godly choices and decisions in your life. What naturally follows is that we're at peace with God and peace with others, and, and we're sharper. 
Now, I, I failed to do this in both services, but I'm going to, I had a chainsaw I brought today to give you an illustration. And it works like this. Uh, when I was, I think, 15, 14, mom, I'm trying to get this right. I may have been as old as 16. I uh, went to work for this guy named Wayne Lawhorn, and he had fields, and he asked me to brush hog and kind of plow on some of these fields. And one day when I went out, there was a bunch of trees had fallen over. And so he said, hey, take this chainsaw and go cut those trees up and shove them into the woods. I'm like, cool, a chainsaw. So I go out there and finally figure out how it starts, and I cut it for the first couple of minutes, man, I'm cruising, cutting through trees. I'm feeling, feeling pretty Conan here, and I'm busting up the trees and getting the builder. But after a while, that saw just wasn't working good anymore, right? Clearly, there's something wrong with the saw, and it's not cutting right anymore, and I'm making lots of dust, but not a lot of chips. What's happened? The chain's dull. Okay, so I, I kept trying to muscle through it for a while, and then Wayne came out there, and he's like, what are you doing, you know, <laughs> moron? And he said, I gave you the sharpener for a reason. What, what? He said, you got to stop every once in a while and sharpen the blade so that you can work effectively. I'm like, yeah, but you wanted me to get it done in a hurry. He's like, dude, you have to take care of the equipment. You got to sharpen it so that it's ready to do the job when the job's in front of you. So we sharpened it all up, and guess what happened? Oh, man, I'm busting through trees, no problem at all, <laughs> cutting it right up. In your Christian life, here's this thing about worship. Makes you sharp. Keeps you sharp. You're right on top of things. You know more about Scripture. You know more about the Christian life. You know more about a relationship with God. And you make better choices. And you're better at what you do. That's called being sharp. That's what naturally follows worship. So the last thing that I want to talk with you about is this matter of glorify. And I'm going to give you an example or a definition. Then I want you to listen to a few verses and see if it doesn't change the way you think about the term glory and glorify. In our English language, when we talk about glorify, and this is what it says in Webster, is to cause to be or to treat as being more splendid, excellent, etc., than would normally be considered. To honor with praise, admiration, or worship, or to extol. That's a great English definition. But here comes a revelation for you. You ready? That ain't what it means in Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> that is not the word. The word in Hebrew means this, to give weight. That's the definition, to give weight. Remember that scale I was talking about a little while ago? Lady Justice has got the blinders on, and the thing that has more weight is where the decision goes. When you give weight to God, it means that your decisions, your choices, your values are made according to that which has the most weight. So what you do gives weight towards God. That's what glorying and glorifying means. With that in mind, I want you to listen to a few verses. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. He laid his hands on her and instantly she was restored and began to glorify God. Though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God nor show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Brothers and sisters, what naturally follows when we give greater weight to God and things of God is this. We make choices that give weight to the gospel and make the gospel more valid than other choices. My rights are submitted to God. My body becomes an instrument of communicating the gospel, and I'm living worthy of the gospel because it has more weight in the decisions that I make. So my hope today is in the past few minutes as we've been talking, you've come away with the same message that Paul was trying to get across to the Corinthian church when he talked about their food and their sexuality and how you worship the Lord through this body, this temple of yours. And that message is simply this. Give weight to the gospel by the way you live your life and make your choices. Because you were bought with a price. 
Your body is the temple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give weight through worship to him so that when people see you, they see the gospel.